Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Tim Holcomb, Chair and Director of the John W. Altman Institute for Entrepreneurship at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Prior to his work at Miami, Dr. Holcomb served as the Executive Director of the Jim Moran Institute for Global Entrepreneurship at Florida State University, where he helped raise $100 million to establish the nation's largest interdisciplinary entrepreneurship school. He earned his PhD in Strategic Management and Entrepreneurship from Mays Business School at Texas A&M, and he earned his Bachelor's and MBA from the University of Louisiana at Monroe. Dr. Holcomb has more than 30 years of strategy consulting, international business, and startup experience, including working in the U.S. and more than 25 countries. He has founded eight startups, raising more than $20 million in venture funding for those companies. He has also been an advisor to over 100 startups and high-growth companies over the course of his career. This was a great episode for me not just because I'm a Miami alum as well, but I really appreciate and respect what Dr. Holcomb has built at Miami and the level of students that they're turning out in their department. In this episode, Dr. Holcomb defines what it is to be an entrepreneur and the characteristics that go into that. He explains how their curriculum at Miami teach students to do things rather than teach them about things. And he gives some advice on how companies can build similar characteristics within their workforce. While this is a higher education-based conversation, there's definitely a lot in here for people to take away as they think about how they build the skill set and the experience base of their employees and how they create grit and resilience, creativity, innovation, and a number of other skills within their people. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here is Dr. Tim Holcomb. And we're live. Dr. Holcomb, welcome to the show. Really excited to dive into what it is that you do and, and your department and, and how you've built what you've built there at Miami. And as a proud Miami grad, I'm very excited to get this one out there. So welcome. I wanted to just dive right in. Entrepreneurship is a, a sexy buzzword that's out there. How do you define entrepreneurship? That's a great question, O'Brien. You know, you ask 10 people the question and you get 10 different answers. And, you know, some, some will argue that entrepreneurship is a process or a thing you do. Some would say it's an outcome like a, a startup or a new product. I think it's somewhere in between. I think it's probably better to think about what it, what it requires. And I, I think there are probably four or five things it requires. It requires uh, the courage to face uncertainty head on and be willing to try something new. It requires the humility to accept that failure is a possible outcome with the understanding that if you do fail, it may provide you the pathway to success. And it also requires you to 
have a willingness to collaborate, to bring unity and context to the idea. And then probably the most important thing that it requires patience and determination to make that idea reality. And when we think about it, it's, I think it's easy to sit at a whiteboard and, and uh, come up with a lot of good ideas. It's really hard to take the first step and to draw a distinction between you know, those who do and those who don't. I think it's uh, all in the, the action that the individual takes. And so you run a department based on entrepreneurship. How did you get introduced to Miami? And, you know, what was your mindset coming into that department? All right. Good question. You know, my wife is, um, we still scratch our heads because we moved to Ohio from Florida. And at our age, you should be heading the the opposite direction. And I've had quite a few folks say, what are you doing? But, uh, you know, Miami, Miami University, and I can tell, I can tell, uh, tell you this, O'Brien, because you graduated here, it's a special place. The, the students that come to the university are talented, and you sprinkle in the Midwest work ethic, and you've got something that's special. The entrepreneurship program has been around. The first class was taught actually by, by the namesake for the uh, Entrepreneurship Institute, the John Altman Institute, it was taught by John Altman in 1992. And so we've been perfecting the curriculum now for, well, the better part of 30 years. So there were three things that attracted me to, to Miami. One, the culture at Miami is what we, we refer to as a balanced teacher-scholar model. For those outside of higher education, that may not mean a whole lot. For those that are inside, they'll recognize the fact that we spend as much time teaching our students inside and outside the classroom and as we do on the what, what would be more conventionally viewed as the research side. A lot of the tier one research schools spend an enormous amount of time, the faculty do at least, in doing um, research on the social sciences side that typically includes publications. But here at Miami, it's different. And our faculty really value the time that we spend with our students. So that was one. The second, without question, is the quality of the students. The, uh, the students that we have are, like I said before, they're talented. Uh, graduates like yourself go off and do some really, really exciting things. And the network is, of, of graduates is quite powerful. The third thing, and, and this might be a subtle nuance, is, is the actual program itself. When I decided to come to Miami, it was under the premise that we were going to proceed forward with a kind of a redo of our curriculum, which we ultimately we did, and we reintroduced a co-major and a minor in 2015. And that our whole program now is designed around three fundamental principles. The first is to be an interdisciplinary program. And I'll come back to each of these if you afford me the moment. The second is to create curricular and co-curricular programs that are practice-based and immersive in nature. And then the third element, which is critical for our success, is to intentionally integrate with startup and business ecosystem partners. All three of those are, are I don't want to say they're unique to Miami, but I will say they're, they're, they're relatively unique when you combine the three of those together in the approach that we have to undergraduate entrepreneurship education. So really those three things, those three elements are the things that, that, that made it really easy for me to, to make the decision to move up from Florida to, uh, to Ohio. Did those three principles already exist when you took the position or were those principles that you brought or, or maybe adapted? 
Well, the Miami's been around since 1809, right? Um, it's one of the oldest universities west of the original 13 colonies. So I certainly didn't bring the culture here. It, it's, uh, it's something that's been perfected for quite some time. The students didn't do much on that either. They've been, we've been, Miami's had a, a, a large contingent of, of uh, students and, and graduates that have come through. But I spent almost 20 years in the corporate world. And one of the things that is really important to me that I, I think we did bring and, and help shape the thinking here is to create a program that spends more time teaching students to do things than it does teaching them about things. And it may sound like a subtle, kind of a subtle twist, but so much of what we do in higher education today is spent in textbooks and PowerPoint presentations and lectures teaching students about things. And that's very important. We learn theory, we learn analytical models, we learn algorithms, we learn process and methodology. But where the retention goes up is when our students have the opportunity to practice what they learn. And so we like to, we like to say that we don't teach students about entrepreneurship, we teach them to do it. And our curricular, our courses, and our co-curricular programs, which are really programs that we teach outside the classroom are all about teaching students to do entrepreneurship. Which is one of the things that drew me to you as a guest on here. I'm involved with an organization up in Chicago that's all around experiential education. And as a salesperson myself, who's building my own book of business, you know, I think about that initiative that it takes and you see people who come in and, you know, they, they get it theoretically, but when the rubber meets the road and they have to grind it out and stick with it and do those little things that they have to do every day, you know, they don't cut the mustard. So before we get into the, the actual education piece of that though, I had a question. You said you created a co-major and a minor. Can you explain what a co-major is? Cause I think that's really interesting. Yeah, that's a great. Uh, I appreciate you asking that question. Well, yeah, I said that early, earlier that there were kind of three guiding principles that we, when we redesigned our curriculum, our curricular and co-curricular programs, one of those was to be interdisciplinary in nature. And, and we're housed in the Farmer School of Business, which is a top 20 business school in the nation. You know, we're at a top five undergraduate teaching institution in Miami University. Um, but while we're housed in the Farmer School, we have students from across campus engaged in our program. And when I arrived here, we did have a major in entrepreneurship. And in hindsight, we don't really want students to come in and major in entrepreneurship. We want them to go major in mechanical engineering. We want them to major in interactive media studies. We want them to major in piano performance, in economics, in finance, and accounting. Then we want them to co-major or minor in entrepreneurship, go learn a technical discipline, come to the entrepreneurship program to work in interdisciplinary teams and solve problems. That's how we teach students to do entrepreneurship. So the co-major and the minor is a natural extension of that focus on, of that uh, emphasis on being interdisciplinary in focus. And so uh, our co-major uh, is, it's housed in the farmer school. It's a 31 hour program, but the thing that's unique about it is that students that from outside the farmer school that choose to co-major don't have to take the farmer core. So they don't have to take the, the basic accounting or the basic finance or the basic management or the basic marketing classes. We teach them that. We have a, an entrepreneurial finance. We have a digital marketing program. We have a, a leadership 
and uh, strategy component. So we, we teach them bits and pieces underneath the rubric of entrepreneurship, the entrepreneurial flavor to it. But it allows us to bring in students from across campus. And we know we know it works. Last year, we had uh, roughly 3,100 students from across campus that took at least one entrepreneurship course. Those 3,100 students represented 117 of Miami's 128 majors across campus. I'm not sure if there, uh, well, certainly at Miami, there are no other programs that can attest to having 90, 95% of the um, disciplines across campus engaged in the program. I'm not sure if there's any entrepreneurship program, at least at the undergraduate level nationwide, that can attest to that as well. But it's it's important to us. It creates a unique vibrancy and and kind of an innovative, creative type environment in the classroom that's really hard to replicate when you have, you know, finance management and marketing majors that are, are taking uh, entrepreneurship classes. No offense, by the way, I'm an accounting undergrad. I got my major in accounting back, back in the day. No, I, I think that's fascinating. What are you hearing from the engineering majors, the music majors, you know, the, the people who are outside of business, but coming into your program, like why are they taking it? And what are they walking away with? I've said this a couple of times in the past. I'll say it here on your show as well, that and Jenny Derrick, who's our new dean at the farmer school, may slap my hand because of it. But the practical reality is I don't think any of the divisions across any university campus owns the franchise on entrepreneurship. I mean, if we look at the successful founders, where there's no metric that suggests 90% of them are business school majors. They come they come up from an eclectic background. And and so what we hear from our students is they one, they they enjoy working in a team environment. They appreciate the fact that those teams reflect the types of experiences and skill sets and teams that they would engage in outside of the university. So it'd be uncommon for someone to go to work at well, a place I spent 13 years at, at Accenture, and work with all finance majors. They would very likely work with finance, econ, piano performance, philosophy, psychology, and, and mechanical engineers. So it actually reflects the type of environment that graduates will encounter once they, their feet hit the ground in the real world. So we're hearing back that they enjoy the team environment. They enjoy the fact they're working with students from other disciplines who challenge them to think uh, about a problem or to think about a solution from different angles. And it also becomes a reflection of the type of team environment that they'll encounter once they graduate from Miami University. Yeah, and I imagine it builds maybe a little bit of empathy as well as just open-mindedness to the different ways of thinking, you know, diversity of thought. Yeah, it does. And, and um, you know, if you get four majors from one discipline examining one uh, problem, you'll probably get four different solutions that are all in the same area. That makes sense. But if you get uh, someone from the business school and someone from the arts and sciences and someone from the engineering school, you're very likely to get three different perspectives on how to solve that problem. Not that one is right and the other two are wrong, but, but over time, as you begin to meld those, those perspectives together, you get a better solution to the problem. And, and I, I don't know that, you know, a 19, 20, 21 year old necessarily grasps the, the potential that and the implications of that, 
But I think over time, they come to appreciate the fact that, that it's, it's a good thing to gather input and perspectives, not just from people in, in different disciplines, but different ethnicity and different genders, because we all bring with us an experiential base of knowledge that offers a different spin on how to, in this case, how to solve a problem. Yeah, I mean, those were the experiences that I got the most out of when I was at Miami. I was a communications major, so it was not in the business school. And I wound up having a real interest in uh, media production. And so I wound up writing a couple short films and took all the classes I could around production, whether it was film or audio, and haven't used many of those until I started this podcast. But I'll tell you, like the value of those of those where you have to create something as a group, you have to, you know, vet your ideas through the group. You have to take other people's insight and information and perspective. And then you you have to actually go out and produce something like a real tangible thing and then go be graded on the value of that thing. I mean, I I wound up doing two short films and a uh, a doc short documentary. And those were by far the three biggest learning opportunities that I had when I was there. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I teach I teach senior capstone. We call it New Ventures. It's basically a, an ideated version of a startup accelerator course. So students come in, they have a, a an interesting problem that they want to solve, and they form teams around that problem. They basically, in a fourteen week guided process, go through what you would go through at a TechStars or Y Combinator or Brandery or, or one of the other top uh, accelerators. And it's interesting. You know, you're, you're, we're still dealing largely with 21, 22-year-old uh, adults who at some point realize during the semester, the light bubble going on, they realize, oh, my goodness, this is my startup. This isn't the professor's startup. This isn't one of the faculty members' startup. It's mine. I've got to figure out how to solve it. I've got to lean into the problem to look for and explore different ways in which we might apply a, a model to actually solve that problem. We got to look and see how technology plays a role. We got to look at human capital. How do we inter, inter, integrate uh, maybe a, a product and a service component to it? But at the end of the day, I'll always say at some point the light bulb goes on and the student gets it and they're like, oh my goodness, this is my startup. And once it does, I'll be quite honest, O'Brien, it, it's really an exciting vibrancy as a as a faculty member. We get to work with students who, when they feel that adrenaline, that kind of runs through the, the body and they're like, wow, I'm actually solving a problem. I'm actually having an opportunity now to convince a group of institutional investors because at the end of the, uh, we, twice a year, we run something the Red called the Red Hawk Venture Pitch Competition, where we have anywhere from 20 to, to 30 student-led uh, startups that will pitch to um, a panel of 75 to 100 institutional investors from across the nation. So again, the students, they suddenly realize, you know what, whether I'm starting a company or not, whether I'm CEO of a Fortune 500, I'm still in a, a mode where I have to defend my idea and I have to be passionate about that idea. And I have to have, to have kind of good evidence and data to support the position that I'm taking. Uh, it's not just a matter of coming up with the answer because there's never the answer. <laughs> there's always a, a set of answers. And, and it's, it's really more about the evidence that they put together, the work they put behind it, and the passion that they show for that problem that they've set off to solve. Yeah. And, and I, 
I know that moment that you're talking about because I've I've coached athletics in the past for about three and a half years. I coached uh, CrossFit back in the around 2010, and I can remember people coming into the gym and saying, you know, oh, they would see the workout and say, oh, I can't do that, and I would say, oh, all right, we'll we'll see about that, and then. You know, you'd sp- I'd spend a little bit of extra time with them, give them one or two cues, ways to think about it, maybe a little differently, have them practice it a little differently, and then you'd see them do it. I remember there was one woman who came in and she couldn't do a double under, which is where you jump up. It's with a jump rope and you jump up and the, you spin it really fast and the jump rope goes underneath you twice. And she, cu- she couldn't do it. It takes a lot of coordination and timing. And so I was like, by the end of this class, I promise you, you're going to do it. So I worked with her on the side, probably not more than five or 10 minutes and boom, she hit it. And then by the end of the class, she had strung three of them together without stopping. And the change in her face and the look in her eyes was probably the most rewarding experience that I had from the three and a half years that I was coaching those members. And I I imagine that's like a similar thing where like you can just see in somebody's eyes, they go, Oh, I get this. And they they take more ownership than they were taking a second ago. They believe in themselves a little bit more than they did a second ago. That's my favorite thing about teaching or coaching. Well, you know, there's a there's such a a powerful human element to entrepreneurship. And I don't want to oversimplify it. It's it, you know, you can sit at a whiteboard and come up with really good ideas. I'm sure Kalanek and those guys at Uber probably had some really good ideas, but it wasn't until that they had a willingness to take that first step and and put themselves at risk. I mean, there's a there's a certain energy and 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 determination and passion that that has to accompany doing something that is going to make you uncomfortable. And it, it, the first time when the fire gets hot, if you pull back and turn away, and so. I think the human element often, although we glorify entrepreneurs, it often gets lost in the in the fact that it really does take some some level of perseverance and and determination in order to push any idea across the finish line. And frankly, there it's not a destination. Starting a company is not the end goal. <laughs> it's a journey, and it, and along the way, they're going to encounter issues. They've got to be willing to kind of hey, take a step back and examine the challenge that they face and figure out if there's a way to you know, so-called pivot and, and alter the, the strategy. And, and so your, your example of the, the, the young lady in CrossFit is a great one. You can, you can see the smile go, you know, the smile goes on their face, the eyes light up, even if they fail. You know, at least they failed falling forward, as Denzel Washington, Washington likes to say in his, his videos, you know, fall forward. And if you're leaning into that problem, I think you're likely to fall in a positive direction as opposed to leaning back. So let's talk about what that actually looks like. That's a, a good segue. So I'm a freshman or a sophomore walking across campus. I come into your class to begin my co-major. Like, what does it what does it look like to start? For most of our students, we don't direct in, have a direct entry point into the program. Most of the students who co-major or minor in entrepreneurship are introduced to kind of the fundamentals of what is entrepreneurship in a freshman level 101 course. It's a large, one of those typical large format courses. It's taught as a hybrid, notwithstanding the situation we're in with the, the pandemic right now with the, the remote instruction. It's taught as a hybrid, some online, some in person. 
But the idea is to give students a different perspective on what entrepreneurship is. That normally is the point in which we hook the student. They get excited. We can talk about the curriculum that's designed around this practice-based immersive. We talk a lot about here are the types of things you're going to have the opportunity to do. So the, the entry point typically is our 100-level course where the, it's taught across campus. We actually teach it here to students across campuses. We actually teach it in the uh, Taylor Auditorium, which is one of our large format auditorium. Once you've made the decision to co-major or minor, we start students at a 200-level or 201 course, which is our Introduction to Entrepreneurship and Business Model class. We use the Lean Canvas, which is a very common Ashmore's program. We look the Lean Canvas uh, business model uh, as a, uh, an initial entry point. Students learn how to map problems and, and they, they, they figure out what a problem we're solving for a large enough addressable market. They have to understand customer segmentation. They have to look for you know u- unique elements of the value proposition. They also have to think about customer conversion. How do I build awareness and, and activate a customer? To if, if I'm setting up a website or an app to download that app or to come in and to the website and, and sign up or provide a, a login ID or what have you. And then look at the metrics. What are the key metrics that matter? How do I measure success? I need a conversion rate of X. I need a activation rate of Y, so on and so forth. And so that's the very, that's the entry point. That's really the, the nuts and bolts where the students get their first a visibility or viewpoint into a problem solving that has kind of a an economic or a benefit component to it. It could be economic benefit or social benefit. Beyond that, we also we we run students they have the the, the flexibility to uh, concentrate on one of four tracks. So we have an entrepreneurship co major and minor, but they can design their curriculum around startup and venture capital, social entrepreneurship, and impact investing corporate innovation and tech commercialization, and then uh, creativity is our fourth track. And it gives students who are interested in starting a business and going out and being the next, I don't know, Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, an avenue to really understand in a high growth context, you know, what is, how does venture capital work? How does it, what does it mean to, to create problem solution fit? You know, at what point do I begin scaling? What are some of the challenges that I face it? That area. It also gives students who are really passionate about solving a societal problem. Could be food insecurity. It could be addiction recovery. It could be anything that they and, and they want to tackle that. And that has a strong kind of a social venture element or social enterprise element to it, and an avenue. And then then for those for those students who are really interested in the corporate environment but want to be on the front end in terms of innovation and R and D. We have our corporate innovation track where we teach students how to commercialize technology and introduce new products into new markets. So what is the creativity piece? Is that that last piece that you talked about, the the corporate innovation? Well, uh, our fourth track is creativity. We actually start students early on. We have a a course that actually every student is required to take. I guess you should mention that as well. It's another 100-level course, Entrepreneurship 103. It's creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurial thinking where we actually give students different techniques and tools to use and to develop um, an understanding of and then to apply in group settings or team settings. Um, And then we actually put them in um, cross-functional teams to work with other 
students from other disciplines to solve a, a real problem for a, a corporate entity. They do that as a freshman as part of the farmer school's first year integrated core. You know, past clients have been uh, Fifth Third, Cleveland Clinic are, are two examples of companies that have provided students the opportunity to actually solve problems for them. But the creativity piece is really to get students to think, to be honest, to get students who are joining our undergraduate program from high school to think less about standardized testing. There's always one answer, which there isn't. And to think more about the, the nuances of, of solution development that may very well take take bits and pieces from different solutions to fashion together one that has the, the biggest potential for impact in solving that problem. So the creativity piece, while it's something that we allow students to focus on from a track standpoint, frankly, it's um, kind of a, a, a key component of, of all four of our tracks. And, and when does the rubber hit the road where you start making them uncomfortable? Well, we make them uncomfortable uh, as freshmen. If you, if you look at the, the first year integrated core, we take our creativity course, we match it up with analytical problem solving and communications, and, and we put students, we, we teach, and this is one of the challenges of higher ed. You know, the traditional higher ed model is a, a vertical silo discipline, psychology, economics, mechanical engineering, accounting. But the reality is communication skills cut across the disciplines creativity and innovative thinking cut across the disciplines, analytical problem solving cut across those disciplines. So at Miami, one of the things we do with our freshmen is we have them immediately go into thinking skills-based knowledge acquisition, and then we move them into the individual disciplines. So they only already appreciate that there are skills that cut across these disciplines. The rubber hits the road early on. Where the students have an opportunity, and, and the students have an opportunity through our co-curricular programs, to be involved in problem-solving activities from the moment they step on campus. So I think I may have mentioned to you before, O'Brien, that we actually have more co-curricular programs than we have courses in our core. Uh, If you can think of a co-curricular program as a a program that is taught outside of the classroom, so examples of that, we partner with Techstars, which is the largest startup accelerator network in the world, and we offer startup weekend in the fall. It's a three-day intensive, 72-hour program where students form teams of five to, to seven students that go off and solve a problem, and they ultimately pitch that startup idea to a panel of judges. We have a program called Social Innovation Weekend that we run. It's very similar to our startup weekend platform, but we run it in the spring. It actually tackles a societal problem. We're in our fourth year. The first year we ran a program that looked at high rates of infant mortality among the underserved population. Second year we ran it, dealt with opioid addiction and addiction recovery. We partnered with the state of Ohio out of Columbus and worked very closely with Mike DeWine's office when he was the attorney general. Last year, we we focused on food insecurity or these food deserts in urban areas. We partnered with Kroger and Kroger's um, Zero Waste, Zero Hunger program. We also had Chipotle and Food Store Bank and several other organizations, 40 organizations in total that came in and worked with our students. So the rubber hits the road as soon as they step on campus, but it's not, there's no one event in particular that I can say, okay, here's the point at which they get it. We, we I, and you'll appreciate this because you're from uh, live in Chicago now. I'm, I'm old enough to remember Michael Jordan when he played for the 
for North Carolina. And uh, my I, wife I like and I are that. watching the last dance right now. So, well, there you go. I, I, I love the analogy here of Michael Jordan going to North Carolina to play basketball for Dean Smith. Imagine, though, if he went to North Carolina to major in basketball and he got a textbook and he took a class on dribbling and he got a textbook and took a class on shooting and he took a class on defense and he took a class on offense. But the first time he ever touched the ball was his first day with the Chicago Bulls. Would he have still been the basketball player he turned out to be in his professional career in the NBA? Probably not. I'm going to go with no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and 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 as someone who's in higher education, I, I feel fine in saying this. That's where the traditional model for higher education has been. Let's teach students about things, but let's wait until they get out in the real world to learn how to apply that. We, we don't do that. Our goal at Miami is to give students as many shots on goal as possible, because ultimately the ball is going to go in the hoop. From the third shot or the fourth shot, and they're going to say, "Oh, I get it. I've got to have this arc from ten feet. I have this, you know, this energy from my wrist." And they'll they'll get it. They'll understand in passing the ball, it's better to to, to do a whatever a bounce pass and a straight pass if you got. But they won't learn that by reading a textbook. So that this, when does the rubber hit the road for us? Back to your original question. It's actually a a journey that the students go through over a four year period. It starts as freshmen. As we kind of decouple that high school mindset of there's always one right answer and we get them started very early and there's getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, yeah. right? There's not always one right answer. There may be several. There may be one better answer than another, but that doesn't make it right. So all of our classes are geared towards that and all these co-curricular programs are geared towards students actually uh, applying what they're learning in a, from a perspective of getting them comfortable with with testing and applying what they've learned in the classroom. That makes me think of the model of flow too, which is, you know, you always have to be working just at the, just beyond the edge of your skill level, but not too far ahead that you get frustrated. And as your skill level increases, you always have to be moving up to the next level. And so you, you kind of always having to be leveling up. And I, that sounds like what you're describing where you come in, you get some, you know, kind of change your perspective maybe have a couple projects, get exposed to some things. And then by senior year, you're doing these capstones, pitching your own business. You know, you've put the whole thing together yourself. I spent uh, 13 years at Accenture and I can remember as a staff consultant, senior consultant, manager, associate partner, partner at, at each. And I've, I've been away for so long. I don't know if Accenture still does this, but they would tell you when you get promoted to senior, we want you to perform as a manager. When you get perform, when you get promoted to manager, we want you to perform at an at an associate partner level. The reality is, they want to prepare you to perform at the next level. That's a good analogy of how of what we're trying to do here. I had a a Miami alum whose name escapes me right now runs the uh, Chicago office for EY. Actually, he had a told me something that I use even today. He said well, the reason we hire so many Miami graduates is because Miami prepares students or graduates to be job ready day one. In other words, we don't prepare students to have the knowledge and the capacity to perform somewhere down the road. Our goal is to prepare students when they land at your company to be prepared to contribute in a meaningful way day one. And the only way to do that is to get a student as a, as a sophomore, junior, senior 
thinking as they would as a 22, 23, 24-year-old at year one, two, or three in whatever company they go to work for. What impact has your program had on the other departments within Miami, if any? Mm. You know what? I'd have to defer that to chairs of other departments to tell you that. I think we've allowed other departments to elevate their game, at least as it relates to their students being exposed to opportunities to apply what they've learned in the classroom. I don't know that we've made the mechanical engineering program any better, but I think what we've done is we've given students in mechanical engineering or engineering management, just to pick the engineering uh, school as as a poor example, the opportunity to apply what they've learned as analytical problem-solving skills to actually solve problems in interdisciplinary teams. So really exposing them to those the, the opportunity to tap into disciplines. So it's more the, the, the human capital element, probably more so than it is the process of the methodology element. I, I, I would not sit here and tell you that the fact that we have one of the you know top-ranked entrepreneurship programs has made our accounting program any better. But it is, I think it certainly gives those students who want to move out and work in these interdisciplinary teams an opportunity to do so with a, a group of faculty who are actually comfortable in not only serving as a, 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 an instructor, but also as a, a coach and a mentor as well. Yeah, and I guess I was just curious if you had seen other instructors starting to maybe take more risks around, you know, that immersive experience-based education model. No, I think Miami's in general, as a general statement, Miami prides itself is in creating these immersive experiential opportunities. You know, Miami is one of the leading uh, universities in the nation for the number of international students that actually study abroad. For example, we have a heavy emphasis on internships. We had 98 students that graduated in our first uh, first class that actually came through the full four years as a co-major this past year, and 100% all 98 of those graduates had at least one internship and 74% had two or more internships before they left. And if you think about that, they're actually out working with a company. So they're spending in, in, in some cases, two or three summers, 20, 30 weeks, actually working in the business environment. Or in the case of those that study abroad, they're in maybe in Luxembourg. I don't know if you took advantage of, of that while you were here, or they, they might be in uh, Spain or, or France, or they may be down in South America or over in the uh, the Far East, working in or Asia, working in different cultural climates, but getting exposed to this uh, you know cultural diversity and diverse business environments. And so I you know I don't know that we've necessarily impacted directly other departments, and I'm not even sure that I would I would say that we own the franchise on on the do, but I do because Miami has been very intentional in its approach to giving students experience, experiential opportunity. I think what we have done is we've been very intentional in the way that we approach putting students in contexts that are specifically designed around problem solving in interdisciplinary teams. I did not do Luxembourg, but I did the Laws Hall program in London. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. which was a fantastic time. So that was... Uh, design, marketing, and communication students mixed together and then broken into three teams. We worked for PepsiCo um, for their Walker's Crisps, which is our Lay's potato chips here. Yep. And they wanted us to relaunch 
their major brand in the UK. So we had to put together an entire proposal. We shot commercials, did mock-ups. We had to put an entire annual year-long advertising campaign together. And then we had to pitch it to the executives from those organizations and they voted on the winner. Fantastic. So it was a, it was a great program. Very entrepreneurial. What percentage of your students go on to found companies? <laughs> hey, that's, um, I get that ask. I get that question asked a lot. Let's, let's, let's be honest. Not everyone is uh, at the end of the day, uh, necessarily has the uh, passion and perseverance and determination to run head head first at 90 miles an hour into a wall. Which well, is- that's kind of, it was kind of a leading question because I assumed <laughs> that that was the answer and I, I have a follow-up, but, but I was just curious, you know, like what, what percentage are we talking about that actually go start versus just get into the regular business world? I, I would say those that start businesses day one after graduation, uh, a small number, uh, 10, 15%. So in a, a class of a hundred, we might have ten uh, that, that like go on number. to start a company. Yeah. but over time, we know our, our graduates going on and do some big things. I'll give you some numbers. Some um, I'll give you two sets of data. One, uh, we we launched a venture capital immersion program about four years ago because we saw an, an opening in the market, uh, a need in the market for basically investment analysts to go in and work in venture capital, private equity, and uh, with angel groups. Uh, historically, those groups had relied very heavily on uh, the Ivy League, the the MBA programs like a Booth or a Kellogg or a Harvard or a Stanford, but there's not enough talent coming out of that, those uh, sources. So we, we launched this program, and uh, with that, we actually subscribed to a platform called PitchBook. And I had one of our students look into PitchBook to identify startups, funded startups that were launched by Miami graduates over the last 10 years, and I was floored when I found out we had about 250 alumni over the last 10 years that have started roughly 130, 135 funded startups. And by that, I mean, these are companies, high-growth companies that have raised at least a quarter of a million dollars. Collectively, those 125 companies have raised $6.1 billion. Now, before somebody who's listening to the podcast says, hey, wait, Fundraising isn't an indicator of success. I agree 100%. Um, the amount of money you raise is not an indicator of, of the, the potential impact that a, a high growth company is going to have on the market, but it does indicate that there's institutional value in the, the company itself. And most high growth companies do require capital because they're building an organization today to support revenues 18 months out. And so they're always in a cash constrained mode and therefore Institutional capital normally seed capital, seed A, series A, series B is a big deal. That's a huge number. Now, if I expand the network a little bit and I look at Miami graduates who are in the C-suite of what we would consider model startups, we have alumni that have been involved in one time or another in seven or eight unicorns over the last five years. Double click, founded by a Miami alum. MongoDB, founded by a Miami alum. Go Health out of Chicago, founded by two Miami alum, Brandon Cruz and Clint Jones. Uh, Credit Karma, just recently announced uh, an acquisition by Intuit, a uh, $7 billion acquisition co-founded by Nicole Mustard, who's one of our fall 
you know, speakers in the executive speaker series. She's also chief revenue officer. If we expand that to the C-suite, you've got Ryan Graves, who was former chief operating officer and board director at Uber. We have the, the chief marketing officer at Uber, uh, whose name is case me right now, um, Messina, Rebecca Messina. I was a CMO at Uber. If you look at Instagram, Marin Levine, former chief operating officer, now heads up global operations for Facebook. You look at Adam Bain at Twitter, former chief operating officer, now sits on the board of directors for Virgin Galactic, working with Richard Branson, trying to figure out how to get humans up to space. These are Miami alum that are planted into what most would accept, generally accept as this unicorn model. And uh, we don't talk about that a lot. It's probably a something that we should take the opportunity to speak more about. But we know that our graduates go on and do great things, like yourself, O'Brien, that they go on and do great things. Second data point I'll give you that, that suggests that the mix of opportunities and the things that we're doing here at Miami is working is that Money Magazine survey that came out about three or four years ago, Money Magazine did a survey of Fortune 500 suite looking at the undergraduate institutions of, the, of those that were CEOs in the Fortune 500 Miami was ranked third behind Princeton and Stanford. So I jokingly referred when we were going through our dean search to, to fill the dean position this past year, Jenny uh, Derrick, who joined us from the Drucker School in California, now leads the, the farmer school. I said, this is the third best job for anyone seeking to be a dean. And all you have to do is look at the, the CEO suite in the Fortune 500. Miami has is number one at least was at the time, for female CEOs in the Fortune 500 suite. Oh, wow. Lynn Good, Lynn Good is a good example of that at Duke Energy. So my the, the, the opportunities that we provide students more generally at Miami, um, but specifically the opportunities we give our graduates through our entrepreneurship program, prepare them to be, to, to steal the, the term of uh, the, the alum that, uh, at ENY that says, uh, prepares our graduates to be job ready day one. So what recommendations or what advice would you give to a corporate HR leader or CEO, or even just a manager who wants to build that type of creative skill set, that type of ownership of projects within their employee base? What What are the things that you're teaching that could also be translated into corporate development environments? Yeah, you hear um, in the entrepreneurship world, we, we, one of the buzzwords is failure. Yeah, you got to fail fast. First of all, I'm not a big believer in that because failure hurts. It's painful. But at the same time, when we talk about failure in an entrepreneurial context, we're not talking about failure of the company. We're talking about failure of an assumption. And I had a, a good friend of mine who likes to, to say that you can actually apply the scientific method to entrepreneurship. So there really is a science behind it in terms of hypothesis testing. I think I have a problem. I go out and interview a bunch of people. I validate they experience that same problem. I move on. I think I have a problem. I go out and talk to a bunch of people. They don't seem to think it's a problem. And it's probably just a problem for me and not for the market. So the notion of failure in a, in a corporate context, failure in terms of being okay that we tried something, it didn't work. We can take that as a learning. Let's apply that and let's not make the same mistake twice, of course, but let's be comfortable with the fact that we're going to try some things that may not work. 
let's set those aside into our, our knowledge base of of experience and not do it again, and let's try something else. And continuing to iterate this assumption based approach to entrepreneurial thinking is a is a is an important strategy. So I think even in the corporate context, O'Brien, it's an, it's important for us to be willing to put our employees in a position where they can actually try new things. They can iterate, quote unquote, iterate. They can pivot to steal another term that we hear often if it, if some some assumption they made didn't work or didn't pan out. But to make sure that we're testing, always testing um, with primary data, if at all possible, <laughs> but always testing. We're, I, I, I tell students... You're going to spend a, a week or two in the classroom. They're going to get you outside of the classroom. We're probably going to get you outside of Oxford. We're going to get you plugged into the ecosystem. So you're actually talking and interacting with a market or a cons- customer segment that is actually impacted by the problem that you've um, identified or the, the issue you've chosen to tackle. And so from a corporate standpoint, I think um, encouraging entrepreneurial thinking or innovative thinking, which to me implies we're okay and we're, we're getting comfortable with the fact that we may not always be right, but we're going to learn from that. We're going to, we're going to accept quote unquote failure, failure in the context of I made an assumption I was wrong. Let me pivot and let me make another assumption and test that assumption until I get it right and move on to the next stage. I think that's an incredible way to think about it. And I've never thought about it that way as not being just a general failure, but being a a failure of assumption, because that's not I failed. It's not I'm bad in some way, which is, I think, what people often fear when they fear failure. They fear how that reflects back on them and what that means about them. And so to just think about it as failure of assumption is a much more accessible way to think about it, I think. Right. I had um, an alum, Michael Marksbury, who graduated from our program in 2015. He's the founder and CEO of a company called Oros. Oros, um, well, Michael and his co-founder, Rithik, both Miami alum or Miami grads, uh, both came through our entrepreneurship program. Michael actually was exposed to this technology called Aerogel. Aerogel has been around since the 1930s. NASA uses it to insulate spacesuits, the Mars rover, and space shuttle. But until Michael and Rithik came along, no one had ever figured out how to take this highly unstable and brittle technology and infuse it for commercial purposes. Until Michael and Rithik, across the street from us here in the biology, there is zoology and animal biology majors, figured out a way to infuse this very unstable technology into foam first. And they created something that IP that now is um, uh, patented, something called SolarCore. And now SolarCore, and I, I wish I could uh, pull the, the camera over and show you my jacket. SolarCore has created a thin layer of insulation that uh, is truly the, the best insulative technology on the planet. But Michael and Rithik will tell you they failed time after it's kind of the Edison. Sure. I failed, I failed 10,000 times until I figured out the one filament to use for the light bulb. Well, Michael and Ruth, I don't think they failed 10,000 times. Probably felt, making, like <laughs> probably felt like it. They kept making assumptions, kept making assumptions and boom, they hit upon a, a, whatever, um, a formulation that worked and they've created Oro. So now they've got a company that sold millions of product in 120 countries around the world, 
all predicated on, all based on this fundamental assumption around I can delayer and debulk apparel and still keep the same insulative uh, warmth criteria that I need to keep me warm. And the idea that they have is to one day be able to summit Mount Everest wearing a, a, a half sip and to be able to infuse this this solar core technology actually into the into the thread from which fabric is made on which we wear or from which we actually wear the apparel that we put on our backs. Wow. Uh, but but it's something that you know if you were if it was either a succeed or don't succeed, then they'd have, they would have given up a long time ago. And I use him as an example only because I know Michael and Rithy very well, but I could pick six different examples of founders who tackled a problem, Thomas Edison being one of those, tackled a problem. If he would have given up, we'd still be sitting and, and communicating via candlelight and not a filament-enabled light bulb. <laughs> or any of the technology that we're using here. Yeah. yeah. That, that's a great example. How do you spell Oros? O-R-O-S. Their website is orosapparel.com. It's actually interesting. Um, I'd encourage your listeners to go out and look. They're running a, a campaign right now. They're, they've got a limited edition jacket they've co-designed with NASA. It's the uh, 39A flight jacket. And uh, you know, NASA and Oros, Oros has a strong relationship they've, uh, with NASA. And they've, <laughs> Michael's actually actually has members of uh, the Astronaut Hall of Fame who have hand-signed these jackets and so it's a wow. limited edition that your your listeners may want to go out and and tap into on the orosapparel.com website yeah well so on the podcast website i'll list all the companies that you've mentioned um and have links to all of those so people can go check them out if they want to i know we're coming up on the end of time i have one question that i ask everybody at the end of the show and i would be curious to get your take on this since you teach it what is the purpose of business ah you know that's evolved quite a bit, and, and in fact, there's a there's a debate going on in higher ed right now that, you know, we have this you know capitalistic view that began in the '60s and is carried over that shareholder wealth is a primary focus. I think the practical reality is we've come full circle around defining the purpose of business, and I, I think the 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 purpose of business has has always been, although we lost sight of it, to solve a problem that people, that society cares about in a way that creates value for the consumer and potentially for shareholders and also for the employees that work for that company. That social purpose, O'Brien, has gotten lost in the noise of, of the past three to four decades. I think now we're seeing a convergence back to the basic fundamental belief that, that businesses, while they do create should create economic value for shareholders because they're the ones putting capital at risk. They should also be positioned to serve the employees that, that are employed by them as well as the customers, the consumers that they serve. I agree with that answer. And, and that's a lot of the way that I've been thinking about that question lately as well. It seems like as a society, we got so myopically focused on shareholder value that that's when you started to see you know, workplace cultures deteriorate. It's when you see the quality of products deteriorate because they're just trying to maximize the value of the company and squeeze every penny out of it. And, and I think now you're starting to see 
yes, shareholder value is still important, but you're starting to see quality come back up and you're starting to see culture become much more important than it was before. And I agree with that. I, I like that idea that we can provide a need, serve our customers, build better lives for ourselves and do really well by the shareholders who, who took the risk to go out and start the enterprise in the first place. So I, I, like, I like that answer. Well, thank you for your time, Dr. Holcomb. Really appreciate you making the time for this. I know you're busy adjusting your schedule to all the remote teaching and everything, but uh, this has been fun for me. Uh, Anytime I have an opportunity to connect back to Miami, I love it. And uh, I wish that you had been there when I was there and uh, that it had been a little, it had been more more apparent to me than it was as an opportunity because I love everything that you guys are doing and uh, would love to have had the opportunity to go through that. So really, really appreciate what you're doing for the school. Thank you, O'Brien. It's been a been a pleasure to spend the past hour with you. All right. Good luck with everything uh, this school year. Thank you. Hey, folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it. We'll be right back.